welcome to this episode of Stats, the podcast where we share the accomplishments of the Department of Surgery at Baylor Scott & White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. I'm your host, Dr. Lonnie Gentry. The Stats podcast is sponsored by Dr. Harry Papa Constantino, the chair of the Department of Surgery. In this episode, we talk about the surgical specialty of otolaryngology, also known as ear, nose, and throat, also known as ENT. We'll also talk about a solution for sleep apnea called Inspire. To do so, I've invited Dr. Brian Newbro to talk with me today. Dr. Newbro has been at Temple for six years. Dr. Newbro, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. To start our discussion, tell me about how you ended up as an ENT. Well, I knew at an early age that I always wanted to be a doctor and was fortunate enough to get into medical school. And when I was in medical school, I really loved the head and neck anatomy. And on my earlier uh, sub-eye rotations, I really enjoyed head and neck oncologic surgery and just fell in love with uh, head and neck surgery. How many years did you train after medical school? So uh, ENT uh, head and neck surgery is five years of surgical training. Uh, I trained at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And you came here thereafter? Or? Then I actually served in the Army for four years after, med- after residency. Uh-huh. And then I came here after my fulfillment of my Army service. Uh-huh. So as an ENT or otolaryngologist, what areas do you work in? Well, I have a special interest in head and neck oncologic surgery. Kind of within that subcategory, I also have a special interest in transoral robotic surgery. Transoral robotic surgery is kind of how I also became involved with sleep medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Of the different areas that you specialize in, what percentage of your practice deals with sleep medicine? Well, I'd probably say now my overall practice with sleep medicine is probably about 30 to 40 percent, mm-hmm. if not more. Mm-hmm. The Inspire or hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation is becoming very popular and it's really involving quite a bit of my practice. So what areas does the term sleep medicine encompass? Well, sleep medicine is a very broad topic. Mm -hmm. Um, It can cover anything from obstructive sleep disordered breathing all the way through primary snoring through a frank diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Um, It can affect all ages and populations. Um, We'll see it in our pediatric population as well as our geriatric population. Sleep medicine encompasses both the primary care world as well as the surgical world. Does snoring factor into sleep medicine? Yeah, snoring definitely factors into sleep medicine. A lot of times snoring might be the presenting symptom that brings the patient to the doctor in the first place. Snoring can be very bothersome to patients and bedtime partners and family members alike. Mm -hmm. So sleep apnea is, uh, we hear a lot about it these days. Is that a major medical issue for this country's population, would you say? Obstructive sleep apnea is one of the most major medical comorbidities in this country. It affects more than 12 million people, and that probably is a a number is way lower than what it actually is because many people are undiagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. What would be the signs that would say you probably need to check on this? Well, it's interesting that obstructive sleep apnea can really affect any organ system in your body, but most people will present their primary care presenting with daytime somnolence, fatigue, maybe falling asleep at the wheel, lack of productivity at work. It might even cause hypertension, high blood pressure. Um, It can affect your cardiac, pulmonary, and multiple systems. How do you go about diagnosing sleep apnea? Well, the first thing to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea is taking a good thorough history and physical. You know, meet with your primary care or myself. 
You can talk about different things that may be affecting you. Well, then ultimately, you would need a referral to the the sleep medicine folks to get a diagnostic sleep study. Mm-hmm. Is that where they plug in at night? Yes. The observation? Correct. So once you get a referral to the sleep medicine folks and you get a sleep study, it could be one of two varieties. One is a polysomnogram, which is kind of the traditional sleep study done at the clinic facility, or you can get a home study test. They look at a variety of parameters, including what we call the apnea hypopnea index, which basically calculates your degree of sleep apnea per hour. Uh, An apneic event is defined as cessation of breathing for 10 seconds, and a hypopneic event is described as a reduction in airflow by 30% and a O2 desaturation. And so they calculate that number, and you'll get an objective number called the apnea hypopnea index, where 0 to 5 is normal. 5 to 15 is mild, 15 to 30 is moderate, and greater than 30 is severe. Part of sleep apnea is when you stop breathing? Correct. Or it can also be a reduction in breathing associated with an oxygen desaturation in your blood levels. They also look at other things, for example, restless sleeping or uh, central sleep apneas. They can also calculate that with your sleep study. So if a spouse senses that their partner is going through these episodes of not breathing, a good indication, I think. That's a great indication. In fact, I always recommend the bedtime partner or spouses to come with the patient to the visit because a lot of times they have very valuable information on how the patient is sleeping at night. Once diagnosed, what's the initial treatment? So the initial treatment for obstructive sleep apnea can be as simple as diet, exercise, and weight loss. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times people have obstructive sleep apnea simply because they're overweight. Mm -hmm. And by modifying the diet, losing weight, you can aggressively medically treat your sleep apnea and improve it. If that does not work, then the next option is CPAP therapy, continuous positive airway pressure, or what people probably know as a CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. The CPAP machines are distributed by our pulmonary sleep medicine physicians, and that is the gold standard for obstructive sleep apnea treatment. Every single patient that I see, I always recommend CPAP therapy. A lot of patients have excellent, excellent results with CPAP. Now, unfortunately, some compliance rates with CPAP are in the 60% range or so because it's very difficult to use. Sometimes the machines are loud. um, Sometimes they irritate the patient's face or nose. We'll see a lot of our VA population, uh, for example, has PTSD and they don't like having things on their face. Um, So there's a variety of reasons why people cannot tolerate CPAP therapy, but CPAP is the gold standard. Everything that we do surgically, we measure measure up against CPAP therapy. So basically, the air is being forced into the, to the lungs with CPAP? Correct. I have a good friend that uses CPAP, and I know that it is loud. It is distracting for uh, his spouse, and she usually ends up in the other room because of it. But it's helpful. He needs it. He, he definitely has sleep apnea. Correct. You know, CPAP obviously has its challenges, but there are also some people that absolutely love CPAP. Um, it gets them through the night. They fill up refreshed. and the next day, it improves their daytime somnolence. You know, I think that as technology improves, the CPAP, the CPAP machines themselves are getting better and better. They're quieter. Mm-hmm. The masks, um, they fit much better than they used to. And they maybe aren't quite as irritative as they used to be. Mm-hmm. So of the patients that come to you that are diagnosed with sleep apnea, roughly what percentage manage with weight loss, manage with CPAP or surgery? I would say that I'm kind of pre-selected to see the patients that have failed CPAP uh, or the patients that are actively looking for surgical alternatives. Uh-huh. 
So it's a little bit skewed in my in my experience. I see. Um, yeah. But I always start the conversation kind of the same is that, you know, diet, exercise, weight loss is an option. And even if they're looking for surgical alternatives, I still, you know, communicate to them the importance of CPAP therapy and a good trial of CPAP therapy. Mm-hmm. So that leads us to the surgical option called Inspire. Tell us about that. Correct. So really for surgical options over the years, uh, surgery has really evolved for obstructive sleep apnea. You know, it used to just be tonsillectomy, taking out the adenoids, and we call UPPP, uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. Well, we found that our long-term data using that surgery was only about 40% success rates. Mm. So we kind of pumped the brakes a little bit and said, well, you know, it's tough to offer a surgery with only a 40% mm-hmm. success rate. So we sort of tried to stratify who was successful and who was not successful for surgery. And we sort of found that in a nutshell that if you're morbidly obese, no matter what we do surgically, we're not going to improve your sleep apnea. Then we sort of determined that people with large tonsils and a little tongue and who were skinny also did well with surgery. So mm-hmm. we sort of, with that criteria, our surgical results got better, but they still were not amazing. We then had sort of had a focus on multi-levels of surgery. So if we not only focus on just say just tonsillectomy, but if we focus on the nose, the palate, the tongue, et cetera, and we have a multi-level approach to surgical treatment for sleep apnea, that maybe we'll have better results. And we did. We did have better results with that, but we still were not perfect. And it seemed to be the level that we failed the most was the level at the tongue. Can't just cut out your tongue. People aren't going to appreciate that. You know, that's kind of, again, how I got into sleep medicine is because for oncologic surgery, I did trans or robotic surgery. So I did a lot of tongue-based surgery for obstructive sleep apnea. But as kind of time went on, we, we kept failing at the tongue. And that's kind of where the technology for the hypoglossal nerve stimulator evolved was that, well, if we can dynamically stimulate the tongue to move upon each breath, then that's a way of, of treating the tongue base. And so that's, that's kind of how, how that evolved from a surgical standpoint. So you insert the Inspire device to address this tongue issue. Correct. So, you know, first off, the surgery is sort of involved to hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation. You know, they've even compared uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation to some of those other surgeries that I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And really, it's by far the best surgery that we have for obstructive sleep apnea. Now, still, every patient is unique and individual, and there may be some patients that still benefit from the more traditional surgeries. However, the hypoglossal nerve stimulator has had the best results. But still, even within that category, there are kind of strict criteria for people to be candidates for the hypoglossal nerve stimulator implant. There's a study uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine called the STAR trial, mm-hmm. and where they kind of specifically looked at different parameters for patients. And those parameters include HIs, so the apnea apnea index between 15 and 65, mm-hmm. BMIs of less than 35, and people that have tried CPAP and failed. Mm. We also later came to conclude that you needed to have a central sleep apnea of less than 25%. So that was the study that was used to really gain FDA approval. And that's also kind of the criteria that we've used moving forward to select patients to be appropriate candidates for uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation. Mm-hmm. The surgery involves? It's kind of a, a multi-step process. So for folks that are interested in getting the Inspire, First, they have a good conversation with their primary care providers to discuss diet, exercise, and weight loss management. I always approach this from a multiple a multiple specialty approach. Mm-hmm. 
this is not just a one surgery and done. People still need to continue to make their lifestyle adjustments with diet, exercise, and weight loss. They need to have a great relationship with their pulmonary and sleep medicine folks. And by the time they come to me, we can talk about how surgical implementation can help with their obstructive sleep apnea. And on a visit, the first thing we do is just a physical examination, taking a look at the anatomy of the tongue, the throat, the palate, et cetera. Um, often it includes a flexible laryngoscopy to actually look at the tongue base and the larynx, et cetera, to make sure we're not missing anything else that may be causing obstructive sleep apnea. And also a careful review of their sleep study, because there are certain things within the sleep study that we look at to also make sure that they're a candidate. And then we have to proceed with what is called a drug-induced sleep endoscopy. That is a, a trip to the operating room with anesthesia. Um, a patient is given a, a propofol titration, and we put them into a natural state of sleep. And during this time, we evaluate the airway because we really want to see the pattern of collapse while that patient mm -hmm. is actually sleeping because there are certain patterns of collapse that aren't amenable to the hypoglossal nerve stimulator. And so we kind of have to exclude those patients from surgery. So once they've completed their drug-induced sleep endoscopy, once they already have their sleep study, and typically different insurances may vary, but usually the sleep study needs to be within two years old. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, sign them up for the actual implant. And one thing I like to point out for the actual implant is that you know it, it's a big surgery. Sometimes when you look at this stuff on the internet, it, it, it seems maybe more simple than it is, but I like to prepare folks that they know exactly what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. um, it could be anywhere from a one and a half to, to three hour surgery. Uh, the length of the surgery is kind of based on the anatomy of the, of the hypoglossal nerve. It's a same day surgery. People go home the same day. There's usually a two incision approach, one incision on the neck, just below the, the mandible and below the submandibular gland. And the other incision is on the chest. Mm -hmm. on the, and we typically prefer the right side so that if the patient ever needs any sort of cardiac intervention in the future, the left side is wide open. Mm -hmm. um, there are there have been some uh, kind of some rare instances where we see the left side implants, but we definitely, definitely prefer the mm -hmm. right side. And so on the first incision on the neck, we find the hypoglossal nerve. At the distal part of that nerve, there are some branches that cause the nerve, that cause the tongue to retract, and there are some branches that cause the nerve to extrude. Obviously, we don't want the nerves that cause the tongue to retract to be included in the cuff. We want to stimulate the nerve parts that cause the tongue to move forward. Mm -hmm. So we have to carefully find those nerves and include them in the cuff. Then we place another, through the second incision on the chest, we then place a sensor that goes in between the second and third rib. And then that plugs into what we call the IPG, or it's a, a battery. It's about the size of a pacemaker. Um, you place that on the chest muscle underneath the skin. So you can feel it? So you can actually feel it. So if anybody's ever seen a fan member or had a pacemaker, it's pretty much the exact same. Um, you can feel it. It is somewhat visibly noticeable. And it, it's typically about sort of the mid portion of the pectoralis major. And during surgery, we'll actually we'll test it. We activate it to make sure that the sensor lead is working. Basically, what it does is it detects an, an increase in intrathoracic pressure. And so it decreases, it, it, it detects each breath. Um, that we also make sure that correlates with the stimulus of the tongue. So every time there's an there's a increase in a breath, then the tongue uh, moves forward. Mm. And we, we test it at different intensities to make sure that there's a good connection between the electrodes, the sensor, and the IPG. So you can actually tell if the tongue is doing what it's supposed to do. Correct. During surgery. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And go home the same day. Yes. Everything goes well. Yes. Go home the same day. Yes. And 
the stimulus that's going to the nerve, to the tongue, can the person feel it? it it's a motor nerve. So there, you can't feel it in the sense of there's no pain, there's no tingling feelings. What I've heard it's analogous to is anybody that has physical therapy and they have the TENS units, say, on their thigh or, or an extremity muscle, mm-hmm. um, that's what it feels like. They might be able to feel the motion of the tongue. They don't feel pain. And if that motion bothers them, then we decrease the intensity uh-huh. of, the, of, the, of the signal. So there's a little remote device that the person turns on? Correct. There is a remote, and also the newer models are also Bluetooth compatible with your phone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just have an app on the phone. That's correct. Our phones will fix everything. <laughs> That's eventually. right. That's right. And good night's sleep. And the good night's sleep. Everything goes well. And- That's correct. And, you know, I kind of say, just generally speaking, there's kind of uh, four categories of, of patients when we look at outcomes. And that one, in the first category, it's like they just turn it on and it works. It works on day one. They just, they throw out their CPAP that night and it just works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hitting a grand slam. Um, the second category of folks, it, it takes maybe a month or two uh, to mess with the intensity. And they finally get to a point where they're getting a good night's sleep and they are actually able to get off a of CPAP. Mm-hmm. Then there's a third group of folks that it takes even longer, maybe four to six months of adjusting the intensities of the of hypoglossal nerve stimulator and but eventually they get to a good spot and they're off of their CPAP. Mm-hmm. And then the the last 25% you know they have issues. But within the actual electrode you can adjust on how it stimulates the nerve. It's very customizable. Mm-hmm. And for example the the sleep medicine folks they know how to change the different stimulus parameters on the cuff so that it can stimulate the tongue in a different way. So if a patient doesn't get the results that they want initially, there's lots of room to adjust the signal so that they so they, they start getting the results that they want. And that leads us, you know, kind of overall, uh, there's about a 90% satisfaction rate uh, with people that they're happy they got it. And they if they had the opportunity to get it again, they definitely would. I would say that there is about an 80% to 85% outcome of AHIs of less than 15 or less than 5 and getting off a of CPAP. And it's probably about an 80% reduction in snoring. Do some people keep their CPAP machine? They can. And, you know, it's also, again, every patient is unique and different. Um, a patient who is living with an AHI of 65 is much different than a person living with an AHI of 16, mm-hmm. even though both are candidates for the surgery. We used to kind of define surgical success as a reduction AHI by 50% and surgical cure as a reduction in AHI down to less than five and off a of CPAP. So a lot of it kind of matters on where we start from and what overall expectations are. For example, somebody has an AHI of 65 and you get them down to an AHI of 12, that, that's a dramatic improvement in their, mm-hmm. in their medical sure. outcome and probability. However, 12 still may not be good enough. They still may be a little sluggish the next day. So you can combine that with say an oral appliance uh-huh. or you can continue to use CPAP just with a lower pressure and sometimes CPAP is much more tolerable. You sound pretty excited about this technology, yeah, this, I, this procedure. I, I'm excited about it because I've seen you know, in my career kind of the evolution of sleep surgery. You know, I've seen where it's gone from just tonsillectomy and a P all the way up through trans oral robotic surgery, tongue-based reductions, and now into this. 
And uh, this, the natural evolution of where this technology has gone, it kind of exactly fits where we failed surgically in the past. And I think anybody knows that if you, if you don't get a good night's rest, you know, it just really makes for a miserable quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're able to, you know, help quite a few people with this. So how does being here at uh, Baylor Scott and White Medical Center Temple enhance your practice in this particular uh, approach to helping patients? Well, I think that one, we have a great base of primary care providers here at Baylor Scott and White, uh, and we're able to reach a large population of folks here throughout Central Texas and Texas abroad. Mm-hmm. And so that really enhances, you know, the patients that we can help and, and capture. And, you know, they, we have a great sleep medicine facility here in Temple, a great sleep medicine facility in Round Rock, a lot of great pulmonary and sleep medicine professionals working here as well that do great work with diagnosing sleep apnea, managing sleep apnea, prescribing sleep apnea machines and all that. And so I think that by having an integrated system of primary care providers, pulmonologists, sleep medicine, and now surgeons, we're able to kind of give everybody all the options that they need. So if someone suspects they might have a problem or their spouse suspects that they have a problem, where do they start? I think the first thing is, you know, meet with your primary care provider and, you know, talk about obstructive sleep apnea. And probably after that, the next step would be to get a diagnostic sleep study. Now, if they've tried some different things and are not satisfied, can they contact you? Absolutely. They can always call. I'm I'm happy to see anybody Mm -hmm. um, for, for sleep apnea. Um, they can contact our office and make an appointment to see me and because uh, I'm happy to see anybody Great, has any yeah. issues. So, Dr. Newbro, does insurance typically cover this procedure? Yes, uh, insurance covers, covers this procedure. There are different criteria for different insurance companies. <laughs> I always tell my patients, out of all the stuff I do, this is one of the things that is definitely regulated by what the insurances tell us. For the most part, anybody that has an AHI between 15 and 65, a BMI of less than 35, and have tried CPAP and failed are candidates. There might be some insurance companies that require a BMI of 32. There might be some insurance companies that will allow a five-year-old sleep study versus a two-year-old sleep study. So there are some variances. Also, uh, TRICARE, the VA, also is uh, covers these as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get a lot of referrals from the VA and TRICARE folks as well. Mm-hmm. Medicare. And, and Medicare is included in, in this as well. So there's really no reason for someone not to seek help if they feel like they've got a problem. That is correct. Well, Dr. Newbro, thanks so much for talking with me today. I wish you the best in your practice. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of Stats. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Sharing the Accomplishments of Temple Surgery.